Well, indeed, this is, as we've heard probably three times already last week for our psalm series. Uh, we spent 10 weeks in the psalms. Uh, hopefully, it's been a time that you have enjoyed, uh, a time of, of perhaps learning. Uh, I think, hopefully, some people I've talked to have been inspired. Uh, it seems like some people haven't spent a ton of time reading the psalms before. This has sort of whetted their appetite for this section of the Bible, which is full of just so, so much vivid imagery and, and concepts and ideas. And as, as it started the series by talking about how poetry is not one of my favorite things in this world, and is not one of the things that I enjoy, because I don't really have a poetic, my, my brain is more linear thinking, not so these abstract poetic thoughts, whatnot. But ironically, that's actually why I love the book of Psalms, because without the book of Psalms, I would be lacking a resource to go to for some of these uh, more creative words and phrases that I can use in my prayer life and I can use in my various ways of worshiping and praising God. So I really actually appreciate the Psalms, even though I struggle with poetry at times. It, it gives me a language I don't just naturally have. Perhaps you can relate to that as well. You know, the Psalms from their origin are considered to be the inspired hymn book of the people of God. Right back to their origin, that was sort of what they were intended for, but they weren't just read. Uh, if you were with us the week that Jerry Shepard spoke, he talked to us about how quite often the psalms were actually sung. So when we talk about songs of summer, we're not just talking about poetic uh, phrases and whatnot. We're actually talking about pieces of literature that typically were sung, songs that were sung on the way up or on the way down from the temple and in daily life. And it was so common in people's just natural culture back in, in the... Uh, the early ancient Near East, is that when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, remember on Palm Sunday, when he came into the city of Jerusalem and they put down palm trees and they put down their cloaks, it, the Psalms were just such a natural part of their life that they, that they broke out in psalm or in song. In fact, if you remember what they said on Palm Sunday, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is actually a line from Psalm 118. And it was a sort of a, sprat, a, a sort of spontaneous thing that happened because these Psalms were just so natural to who they were and to their daily life. And in fact, when we read the book of Psalms, in light of what we know from the rest of the Bible, quite often we find these, uh, these pieces that point to Jesus. Because the psalm book actually could be considered the song book of Jesus himself. There's messianic psalms, there's, there's allusions to the coming Messiah who will come one day, and he lived in that time and day, so he probably sung these songs himself as well. So what we've been studying these last 10 weeks really is the timeless worship of God's people. Going back to when they were first originally written, right up until today, this is part of the timeless worship of God's people. Now, as I reflected upon that phrase this past week, this idea of timeless worship, I was reminded that when it comes to worship, not everything is timeless. Now, if you've grown up in the church, as I have, some of you longer, some of you shorter times, time frames, You'll know what I mean when I say not everything when it comes to worship or not everything when it comes to church is indeed timeless because things do tend to evolve and they tend to change. Uh, and I was reflecting upon that, upon the changes that I've seen just in, in how we worship and the presentation and the style of worship over the you know, over 40 years that, that I've grown up in the church. Maybe you've grown up a few decades longer or shorter than me, but I just thought I'd share some of these reflections with you and maybe you can relate to some of these. Actually, maybe, maybe I'll show you one of them actually. Because um, we all know the hymn book. We have those hymn books in the pews in front of us. But when churches eventually wanted to move beyond the hymnal, they went to technology of the time. Squeaky, squeaky. There we go. Right. It has to squeak or it doesn't work. So in the 1970s, 
the overhead, as far as I know, emerged. And we still have one that works. Look at that. So, so for the youth and kids that are here, see, this is how pre-PowerPoint we used to have. And see, so what would happen is we always had the hymnal, and we would just sing songs out of the hymnal, but when a church all of a sudden became contemporary, then the worship leader would put the words up on the screen. Now, there's a trick to this because it's actually opposite of what you think it's going to be. Left is right and right is left. And so you put the words up on the screen, and he had to be really quick and follow along to move them up as we went. Next verse, you had to swap them really quick. And so a lot of you remember these overhead projectors that happened. And now, if you had a really contemporary church, when the singing was over, the pastor would come out, and he would use these for his notes as well. And he would sit there with a highlighter, or with a pen, and he would write his notes down. But when he finished his first point, he had a problem because it was full, so he'd have to, he'd have to rub it out and get that red stain all down the inside of his palm here. And if he wasn't careful, it'd end up on his shirt before the end of the, end of the sermon, if you remember that at all. But if you had a really, really progressive pastor, he'd have one of those rolls. Remember the rolls of plastic? He'd just roll it up and advance the film. And then he had an intern who would have to wash it during the week. But then we moved past that. We moved into the 80s. And what happened in the 80s? All of a sudden, music changed a little bit. I remember I walked into church in the early 80s, and there where the hymnal used to sit all by itself, one day appeared the chorus book. As the chorus book arrived. And now a church I went to, we had two of them. We had a red one and a blue one. Now, they're both about 50 pages long, and they weren't that big of a book. I'm not sure why they couldn't just have one. But they had to have two of them in there. I think it was because this was a change, and they figured their safety in numbers. So if we have more choruses than hymnals, maybe we can outnumber the hymnals and win. So the chorus books came out, and all of a sudden, music started to change a little bit. But then as music started to change, the next thing we had was the praise band emerged. And all of a sudden, we have... Things like electric guitars and all the drums showed up on the stage one day. And then we had bass guitar. And it was the 80s, so we also had a synthesizer up there as well. And if you had a very progressive worship leader, you didn't just have a synthesizer, you had a keytar up there, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> the keytar was ultra-contemporary back in the 80s. And so things continue to progress through that, and especially this one. This is the Casio AZ-1 model. You can't go wrong with the AZ-1. So things continue to progress until all of a sudden PowerPoint emerged. And it, it just, I could keep going, but it goes on from there with PowerPoint. Then it turned into motion backgrounds and introduction videos and, and countdown timers on the videos. And as technology advanced, so too did not just the form and the style of worship, but also the presentation of it as well. Now, people have opinions on all these sorts of things. And I'm not here today to give you a commentary on them, simply to share some reflections as the things that in, in my 40-plus years of being in the church I've witnessed have changed a little bit. But I thought a little further about this, and I realized something else, that even though we cannot deny the fact that there has been an evolution and a change in the presentation and technology, things like that, but there's a French proverb that I think still holds true, and it's this, that the more things change the more they stay the same. And what do I mean by that? Well, throughout recorded history of the Christian church, throughout all the cultures around the world that celebrate and worship Jesus Christ, there is diversity and continual progression and evolution in how they worship. 
But no matter what the expression or the style or the presentation, when, when all of that is stripped away, when we strip away all that exterior part of the worship and look at what remains, what we should find is true worship of God. True worship of God is revealed, which I would suggest is defined to include some unaltered, timeless principles that exist. And so as we wrap up our series on the book of Psalms today, we're going to have a look at Psalm 96 in a little bit more detail, where I think some of these timeless principles of worship can be seen. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, your phones, to, to turn to Psalm 96 and follow along with us there. And as we walk through that today, and look at some of these timeless principles, I think we'll find that beneath the periodic modes and expressions and styles resides these truths that have remained unchanged throughout culture and throughout history. Because there's a few things that our worship should always, always contain. So with your Bibles open, following along as you read the first six verses of Psalm 96, a great psalm of praise. We're going to see this. The first six verses reveal to us a call to worship the one true God who saves his people. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and glory are his sanctuary. God has been in the business of saving people from the very beginning, right up until today. That's always been God's business, of saving people. And to see what I mean, we can go right back to the beginning. If we look at the beginning of our Bible in the Old Testament, we see that in there, the foundation of worship is found in the Old Testament for the, for the nation of Israel. And it's really formed around two events. The, the worship for the nation of Israel was based upon the events of the establishment of a covenant with Abraham, and then the Exodus event. And both of these are captured for us in the first five books of our Bible. So to unpack a little bit for you very quickly, starting in Genesis chapter 12, God initiates a relationship with a man who will be the father of a nation that will be his people, a man by the name of Abraham. And he promises to bless Abram with, with children, to bless him with prosperity, that whoever blesses him will be blessed, whoever curses him will be cursed. And he promises him that he will have this, this large area of land that his, his descendants will be more numerous than the sands and the stars. And as we follow his story, we see that he has sons who have sons who have sons. And it reaches the point where his great-grandchildren are the, are the 12 fathers of the nations of the tribes of Israel. Now those 12 tribes continue to grow and continue to establish what comes to be known as the people of God. Now as we follow their story, we find that they end up in bondage in Egypt. But after generations of bondage, they call out to God from their captivity. And God remembers this covenant that he had established with Abraham generations earlier. And God takes steps to bring about their freedom. And then begins the Exodus event, where God sends Moses to free his people. Now, we're all familiar with the story, probably because we've read it in the book of Exodus. But if you haven't read it there, you've probably all watched TV around Easter when ABC always shows the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, 1956, right? So 
It's, it's about four or five hours long with commercials. It's very long. If you get a version without commercials, you can actually fit into an evening. But you remember that movie, Charlton Heston? It was just a classic, classic movie. Very pivotal moment when he walks, when, when Moses walks into Pharaoh's court after he's got his, his robes on from the desert and his staff and his, his face is just burnt with sand and wind from being in the desert and he walks in and the music gets heavy and he walks in, a little steely eye, let my people go. Remember that? And eventually Pharaoh does. Eventually Pharaoh does let God's people go and they journey out to Mount Sinai where they enter into a covenant with God, and they agree to be his people. They agree that they will obey him, that they will worship him. They'll follow the Ten Commandments he establishes, that to him alone will they worship. To him alone will they offer sacrifices. And from this point on, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, their worship is looking back to recall, to proclaim, and to celebrate these two events. This establishment of a covenant with Abraham and the saving of his people in the Exodus event. Now, for Christians, we are people of the Christ event. We are people of the Christ event. So we look at the history, and our worship is focused upon the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we can compare these two events, and there's actually some very interesting similarities between the two. You see, in the Christ event, all of us understand ourselves to be in bondage to evil, to be in bondage to sin. And that was a problem for God because he wanted to establish a relationship with all people. He wanted to enter into a relationship with us, and so that had to be dealt with. So he sent a Messiah. He sent Jesus to make a way for us to be in relationship with God. And through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was made possible. But then going forward, God established a covenant with his church that we would be a people gathered together on mission for God under the headship of Jesus Christ. And this is all found and all made possible because of the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made for us. This is the foundation of our worship. This is the foundation of our praise. If you look at a lot of the the words that we sing during our worship songs, they look to the Christ event. They look to to the example in his life, to his his sacrifice upon the cross and his, his glorious ascension and resurrection and the future hope and promise that that has made possible for us. Our worship is focused upon this Christ event. When we put them together, we can see that there's kind of this timeless thread that runs through both narratives throughout the whole Bible. And it's this. It's that in God alone, salvation is found. In God alone, salvation is found. And that is our motivation for our worship. Our motivation for worship is salvation found in God alone. That is the reason that we gather to worship God. Now, a quick study of the Old Testament will show us that Israel had a bad habit. They had a bad habit of, of, of not doing this. They had a, a bad habit of turning away from God, of violating this covenant. They had a habit of disobeying him and ignoring his commands and even turning to other idols and worshiping them instead. It, it gets to a point in the Old Testament where, where, where God sends his prophets to warn them and to, and to convince them to, to turn back to him. In Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah comes before the people with words from God and, and Jeremiah says, God feels betrayed, folks. God feels betrayed, and when he thinks about you, the words that come to his mind are adulterers and prostitutes. Yikes. How would you like God to look down on you and say, I see you, and you're an adulterer? When I look at you, I just, all I can think of is that you're a prostitute. 
That's strong language from God Almighty to look upon people that he is in a covenant relationship with. Now, it's easy to judge Israel and to think of them foolish because, you know, they knew God. Not too many generations earlier, they had, their, their relatives had endured and seen the plagues God brought, God brought upon Egypt and protected them people. They, they knew that God had parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land while Pharaoh's armies were defeated. They knew that God had sent manna, bread from heaven. God had provided water from a rock. God had looked after them for an entire generation as they wandered in the desert. They knew these stories. It was part of their not-too-distant history. They had witnessed them, part of their history. Why would they turn from God having such a foundation of worship? Well, if we're with ourselves, I think we can be exactly guilty of the same thing. Is that You see, God's greatest desire is for him to be the first love in our lives. He's very clear about that, that he wants none other higher than him in our lives, in priority and in devotion. And yet the world around us, as we all are very, very well aware, the world around us sends these competing things for our allegiances and for our attention. The world gives messages that people choose to follow at times as to what the definition of happiness is as to what the definition of success is, of, of how to understand a worldview or a lifestyle to be lived. And all of us have encountered people, all of us maybe even have testimonies or stories in our own past of when we have chased after these things of the world. And they've left us feeling empty. They've left us even frustrated at times, going, why doesn't this fill up? It's like trying to catch the wind or trying to hold sand in your hand. It just slips through your fingers all the time. Never quite fills you up. Like trying to drink water when what you really need is food. It satisfies for a moment, but very quickly leaves you even hungrier. And it continues to leave you in bondage and to leave you broken. These are stories that exist in our world today, perhaps in some of our lives in the past, maybe even right now. One famous testimony that I just absolutely loved hearing a couple years ago was was won by a famous athlete by the name of Deion Sanders. Remember the name Deion Sanders? Very familiar. He was a fantastic athlete in Major League Baseball and in the NFL. So it's not very often you find one who can cross over into two sports, but, but he was great at both. He was extremely talented. He, he had the nicknames of Primetime and uh, Neon Dion, people referred to him as. But not only was his reputation to be a fantastic athlete, he was also known to be a bit of a jerk. And he was known of being a little outspoken, not a lot, a little outspoken, a lot outspoken, and very harsh and brash in his language and in the interviews that he would give. But like all pro athletes, his goal was to achieve the highest level, to win the big prize. In the NFL, that's the Super Bowl. Well, it finally happened for him in 1995 when he won his first Super Bowl. And in his own words, I'll share with you from his testimony what happened that night. That night after the game, I was the first one out of the locker room. I was the first one to the press conference, and I was the first one to go home. And I remember my wife saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have like a party to go to or something downstairs you need to go do? I just said, no. And I rolled over and went to sleep. That was the same week that I brought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. And I hadn't even driven a mile before I realized, nope, that's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else, but I'm just so hungry. 
And that's when, and as he reflects back upon this time, he says, that's when the Lord was really calling me, pulling me, drawing me along. I tried everything. I tried parties. I tried women, buying expensive jewelry and gadgets, and nothing helped. There was no peace. There was no joy. There was just this nagging emptiness inside of me. My life was falling apart. Imagine this guy who's at the top of his sport. He's just won the Super Bowl. And his reflection is, my life's just falling apart. From the outside looking in, it doesn't make sense. But from within his own sharing, that is what he's feeling because something's missing. Now, throughout this time in the season prior, God had brought people into his life, friends, teammates, and some family who were sharing the good news of Jesus Christ through word and through deed. And one of them had given him a Bible at one point. So as he continues the story, he says, Later that night I got up and I opened my Bible. And I opened it to a passage that said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. He says, Those words hit me like a ton of bricks, because they were meant for me. And at that moment, I was delivered. And he gave his life to Christ that night. Now, there was an immediate transformation in him. If you had seen him following his conversion, whenever he was on TV, people didn't quite know what to think. They'd always want him for interviews because he's always going to say something that was worthy of the highlight show later on that night because of how, how brash he was in his comments. But, but suddenly, there was, this, there was a bit of a gentleness and, and a, more of a meekness to him. He was still a very confident man, huge smile, very confident and poised. But he also wasn't afraid to speak the good news of Jesus Christ, even when the national cameras were in his face. You can watch, you listen to his whole testimony. If you just go to YouTube and, and Google his name, you'll find his whole testimony and see what an incredible example of the saving work of Jesus Christ that happens in people's lives this very day. And you see, folks, this is the foundation of our praise. It's the foundation of our praise. It's one of the first timeless truths of our worship is that we worship the one true God who saves his people. All of us have a story of how God has been reaching us, how God has been calling us, and for most of us here, I believe, how God got our attention and we accepted that calling. And he changed us and saved us. We have incredible reason to praise him. But as the psalm continues in Psalm 96, we see a second timeless truth coming through in verse 7 and 9, which reveals for us also a call to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. And it says this in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think we can break this down into two parts. First of all, focus upon what does it mean to talk about God's glory? Well, a moment ago, I mentioned that the motivation for our worship is who God is and his work in our lives, his saving work in our lives. So I want to take this a step further and suggest to you that our motivation for worship, our motivation being who God is and his saving work in our lives, that that is directly related to the manner of our worship. Here's what that means. You see, as we experience God's goodness as we experience his power, as we experience his salvation, as we begin to learn just how significant that is, and we grow in our appreciation for the magnitude of God and 
ourselves in relationship, it is humbling. When we see how great God is, how good he is, how loving he is, how powerful and majestic he is, we cannot help but be struck by how finite we are, by how fallen we are. And the greater we come to realize this, the greater this gap grows, the greater the potential and opportunity for our worship is. Now, the intended result is not for us to just turtle inside of our shells as we're afraid of how great God is and how fallen we are. That's not the intended result. The intended result is amazement that this God knows me, that that this God loves me, that he saved me. And as we come to understand how great that gap is that he bridged to come into my life and change it, it leads to this emotive expression it leads to something that just begs to come forth. That is not just satisfied for an hour on Sunday morning, but wants to find voice in all areas of our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our callings, in our missions, in our relationships, that it begs to find expression in all of those areas. So our motivation who God is, and what he has done to save us, when we grasp the depth of that, is directly related to the manner and the extravagance of what we offer back. So let's think about that second part, this idea of splendor. The the word splendor can also be understood as as, uh, brilliance or grandeur. So think think like royal courts. Think of um, a palace, uh, perhaps a, a cathedral, for example. Uh, I have a picture here of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Montreal. I think um, Carrie and Shelley were just there this past summer, a few weeks ago on their vacation. And if you were to walk into this place, I personally haven't, but I think I get it right from pictures I've seen. From the minute you walk in, from the floor to the pews, to the walls, to the windows, to the roof, from the front to the back, it is just covered in splendor and grandeur. It gives you a sore neck just looking around at how richly ornately ordained the entire building is. So when we think about who God is, we also need to consider the offering that we bring to him. And when we consider how great God's glory is, then we look at what we bring to him, we bring back to him. How much is too much for God? in one way, is a question that the church has wrestled with and answered different ways throughout different seasons and throughout different ages of Christendom. You see, the early church started by focusing upon intimacy and community and warmth and and this inviting aspect of God as, as they came together. And then throughout the centuries, we moved gradually towards what's referred to as a dramatization of worship, to this dramatization of worship, which we see in 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 many of the, the high churches, if you will, more of the structured liturgical churches, where everything is dramatized, meaning there's, there's this emphasis upon, uh, upon specifically and clearly emphasizing God's glory and majesty through, through reverence and through ceremonial steps. Everything is ordered. Everything is structured. Everything is very reverent. And it creates this atmosphere of reverence and grandeur. Now, Many people are suspicious of anything to do with high church, and I understand the basis for that. Putting theology aside and just looking at the expression, 
I invite you to consider a question, though. Is there anything that we can learn? Is there anything that we can learn from, from that type of an expression? Here's what I mean by that. When we look at our worship, is it possible we've become too comfortable? That we've become too casual? Is it possible that, that when we look at our worship, that the offering we bring perhaps isn't as worthy of God's holiness as it should be? And I'm thinking beyond stained glass windows and painted roofs and pews. What I'm thinking about is when we look at our hearts that we bring to worship. When we consider the attitudes that we bring, the opinions, the purposes, the expressions, how we relate to one another. When we look at those things and consider all of those as offerings to God as well, are those worthy of God's holiness? Are we worshiping him in splendor in all those areas as well? And it goes so much deeper than style and tempo and instrumentation and preferences. It goes deeper than that to our motivation, where our motivation is to worship the one God who saves his people, but to do so in a manner that is worthy of his splendor and his holiness. Well, there's one more final section here that we see in this psalm. And this is a final part is a psalm that looks towards God's sovereignty and to the future of worship for all people. And it reveals to us a call for all creation to proclaim the sovereignty of God. Follow along as we finish the verses of this Psalm 96. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the earth in righteousness and the people in their faithfulness. God is creator, and God is savior of all. And God reigns eternally in righteousness and faithfulness and in love. And the day is coming, folks, when he will come and he will set all things right. That day is coming. We have promises in Scripture where that time is coming when he will restore his order to all of creation. And God's truth and God's justice will be known by all people. That day is coming. But until then, in anticipation of that day, all of God's creation is to praise him. Now, at first glance, as we look at this, you might think to yourself, well, how do seas resound? And and how do fields become jubilant? How in the world does a tree sing for joy? And, and these are troubling phrases, but first of all, I remind you that, remember, we're reading poetry, and so there's figures of speech in poetry, so this could be um, some personification, personification where humanistic characteristics are applied to non-human objects. They're personified. So I think that's going on there, but I want to suggest to you there's something deeper happening here, that there's something deeper happening than just a figure of speech. Because I believe that creation does praise God. It does worship God. And it does it, it worships God by doing what it was created to do. When it does what it was created to do, it is praising God by fulfilling its purpose within God's great created order. Therefore, all creation has a song to play in God's universal orchestra. Like, have you ever gone to a symphony? Like uh, the Empton Symphony, for example, if you go down there and you just sit and as it starts playing, you can close your eyes and it is just the, the talent of the people and the acoustics of the building, it's like you're listening to a CD. 
It's just so beautiful. But then if you open your eyes and you look, there's, there's dozens of people down there with dozens of instruments and different musical scores, everyone playing a part. But as long as everyone plays their part perfectly, when it all comes together, it just creates this beautiful sound, this beautiful music. Well, I think the same thing exists in the masterpiece called God's creation. Is that when all of creation does what it was created to do, it all joins together in a beautiful song of praise towards God. Now, there's a number of psalms that talk about this same principle, that all creation praises God. And to help further demonstrate this, I just want to share with you part of a presentation from a guy named Louis Giglio, who was speaking one time on Psalm 148. And he was talking explicitly about how creation praises God. Now, it's a couple of minutes long, but I invite you to, to follow along and stick with it because I think you're going to like how it ends. He says, praise him sun and moon and praise him all you shining stars. That's not just a poetic idea. That's really happening because stars don't just shine. Stars also sing. Let me just show you a couple more stars. This one is called the Vela Pulsar. And it's magnificent. It's a thousand light years away. It's a highly magnetized neutron star. Right. It simply means this star exploded into a supernova. And in the case of the Vela Pulsar, it collapsed back on itself in a magnetic entity. And as a pulsar, it began oscillating on its axis. This one oscillates 11 times a second on its axis. And as it is oscillating, you can see what's happening. It's shooting a radio frequency out of itself. When they aimed the radio telescopes at the Vela Pulsar, this is what they heard. And this is what this guy does 24-7, day and night, 365 days a year. This is what, from a thousand light years away, the Vela Pulsar sounds like right now. This is it. Listen to this. about you, but I, that blew me away. I'm thinking, wow, this is incredible. You're like, well, what does it mean? I don't know. Is that some kind of Morse code for something or what, what, what does all that mean? I don't know what it means, but and I don't want to, you know, go too crazy here, but maybe the Vela Pulsar got wind somehow innately of Psalm 148 verse 3 and says, it says, praise him, sun and moon and all you shining stars. We're a shining star. We should praise him. Well, how are we going to praise him? I know. Let's oscillate 11 times a second on our axis and see if we can send a radio signal into the universe that would join in the symphony of God's praise from all creation. It's singing. The stars are singing to him. I recently stumbled on 47 Tuck. It's a a beautiful uh, cluster of stars. We'll show you the picture of it here. There are 12 of these super giant blue stars in there. But the things that are of interest to us tonight are these millisecond pulsars. And right now tonight, while we're sitting in this room, the 16 recorded millisecond pulsars and 47 tuck are making this sound right now.
that beautiful? Who knew? No, God has his own string section. He's that beautiful. And we've just looked at one 11 times a second pulsar and 16 millisecond pulsars. And you start seeing Psalm 48 come to life. But look down at verse 7. It says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. The, the whale songs could sound like this right here. Take a listen. We don't know the expanse of the worship that is continually surrounding the throne of God. And our songs are great, but God isn't banking on our songs because he is surrounded by a symphony that's bigger than our wildest dreams tonight. Stars sing and whales sing and the birds fly. And I just tried to imagine what would it sound like if you could just for a second be God and hear what he hears. And I can't get us there tonight, but I, I came close. I had a friend who helped me with this little iPad program. And, and I'm not a DJ, but I, I just a little thing, just quickly, and I, I want you to see how this works. Now, this guy, we didn't look at his picture. He's PSR BO329-54. And he's only rotating one and a half times per second, which is not all that much, but we need him in our little experiment we're going to do here, okay? Um, and then we had the Vela Pulsar. You remember the Vela Pulsar, right? So that's that guy. That's a little too fast for what we're trying to do, so we're going to slow that down, okay? And so we're going to put the, uh, the millisecond guys in there, the ones you just heard. Here they come.
amazing stuff. But, but the fact is, is that when the sun brings its warmth, when it rises in the morning and sets in the east and it brings its warmth during the day, it is praising God. Is that when the waves crash upon the shore, when the tides ebb and flow, they're doing what they're made to do and they're praising God. When that bird starts singing the rise of the sun and it wakes up at 5 a.m., you can't get angry. It's doing what it was created to do. It's praising God. And likewise, when you and I do what we were created to do, we praise God. Not just when we gather with our words, with our hearts, which is so beautiful and genuine. But when we step out these doors in a short time and go about the rest of our lives seeking answers to that question, God has created me for a purpose. How do I praise him with each step and with each breath? We can join all of creation in praising God when we do what we were created to do and join with them. Because our motivation to worship is who God is. He is the one who saves his people. And that should lead us to this expression where where the manner of our worship is just worthy of his incredible splendor of his holiness. That we are not willing to hold anything back or have anything above, but but to give our all in all aspects of life. And when we do, we join all creation in praising him with each breath. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much, that you've planted us in the midst of this incredible, beautiful symphony of who you are, of your creation, of your power, your might, and your majesty. Oh, Lord, it is humbling to consider how great you are and yet how finite we are, and yet, God, you love us. You know us so personally and intimately. God, you love us enough to send your son, Jesus. We can never thank you or appreciate the magnitude of that enough. May we continue to grow every day in understanding that cost and in appreciation for the fact that through him, Lord, we have a relationship with you. Acknowledging that, Father, may we go forth seeking to praise you in new ways and in deeper ways that when people in this world may see us, they would see you and want to join in praising you as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.